Zero is accounting software that has all the features small business owners need to run a business successfully. To help ensure business success, Zero also partners directly with accounting and bookkeeping firms, giving them a suite of tools and training to become Zero experts to help them and confidently advise businesses. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Zero, later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, Visit EarmarkCPE.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where cheating spouses hide money instead of the bodies of former lovers. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. So, Greg, you're divorced. Yes, I am. Thank you for bringing up my public shame on our on our podcast right out the gate. It makes me feel uh, vulnerable and uh, you know and exposed. So, you, so you're ready. Yes. So now you're. So now you're. You're. You're on the. Ba- I got you on your back foot already. Great. Right. Exactly. But but I mean, uh, you know, uh, sensitivities aside, obviously. Uh, <laughs> As I understand your story, you didn't get divorced because you were living some kind of double life, hiding millions of dollars in offshore accounts to finance an international playboy lifestyle, right? Right? That that wasn't you. Uh, well, actually, Caleb, it was billions of dollars with a B, and Excuse I was hiding it in a Wells Fargo saving account like a oh. normal part. No, uh, none of that's true. No, I didn't. I, I, I was not. There was no double life style. My, my marriage uh, failed for a lot of different reasons that my therapist knows very well yeah i mean if we're being vulnerable like my mm-hmm. parents are divorced my parents mm-hmm. got divorced when i was uh, uh in my early 20s oh, and okay. it was similar my parents were i i think married longer than you and your wife were but like similar thing where you know the marriage at, at, at a certain point the marriage was just over yeah and you yeah. know they waited they waited a little bit longer to get divorced but yeah um, but even like um uh, that, what I think I'm trying to say is that I think many divorces are similar to yours in the sense that like there isn't like hidden money and like big scandalous kind of like acrimonious divorces aren't really the norm as far as I can tell. I mean, I'm not immersed in the the divorce world, but uh, but what I'm trying to say is that um, uh, yours sounds relatively typical. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. 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 There was nothing, yeah. no, nothing crazy, nothing weird. It was, yeah, it yeah. Was, it was fairly straightforward, and and because of that, I mean, it, and it is funny because even even with a straight, and the other the other interesting thing about how uh, my divorce ended, which might be unique, is that we had like zero consumer debt when we oh. when we got divorced. So, well, no, 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 not not true. There was we did have a car loan on. Uh, the Toyota Sienna minivan that we had, but it was so close to being paid off that actually part of the part of the divorce decree money side of stuff was that the Toyota Sienna would be paid off with oh, the all right. with our with the marital funds. So in it's, so in terms of your finances, relatively simple. Also, yes, in terms of the division of assets. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah. there. There was nothing too crazy. I, I mean, actually, the the probably the most complex thing we had to deal with was my my business which was just like all the little side hustles that mm-hmm. I had which even that ended up not being that complex it was just a matter of us 
uh, it matter me explaining that there was zero value in that business without right. me. So right. it's not it's not like it's like yeah, she could take my comedy career and start doing my jokes. I guess she could do that, but yeah, it was, Boy, wouldn't that be weird? That would be the weirdest. Yeah. So, but there is not. I mean, but there is a kind of there is a kind of world out there. A world. I don't know if it's a world, but like where 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 there's these complex acrimonious divorces where there's a lot at stake financially and those are it's not that they're uncommon i mean maybe they are uncommon but they seem to get a lot of attention and a lot of resources like when you hear about these stories or if it's just regular nobodies that have money they usually have to get a professional involved right that professional is usually it, for, to track the money and stuff. And mm. that professional is usually a forensic accountant. Correct. And I would say this uh, from going through the process, it's hard. And again, my, my divorce was not acrimonious, but it's difficult to not at least have suspicions that mm. the other person was squirreling away, you know, cash or didn't, you know, didn't disclose right is some sort of asset or something like that. I don't, I don't believe that happened in my case, but I, I would be lying to say that I haven't sat and wondered sometimes if that yeah. if that could have possibly happened. Which is also so even if you don't get into these real complex, really acrimonious, real you it's there, there's so there's so much going on emotionally when you're going through that that it's hard to not just start you know thinking the worst about the person yes. that you that you pledged your life to not too long ago. Yeah, so. Just kind of tee this up a bit. Our our guest on today's show is her name is Tracy Conan, and she's a CPA and a CFF, uh, which is for those unfamiliar, which I kind of was, uh, is certified in financial f- forensics. Uh, anyway, Tracy does a few different kinds of forensic work, and we talk about all of them with her, uh, but specifically her latest foray has been what's called the divorce money guide. And so we talked to her quite a bit about that. Yes, we absolutely did. And it was a great conversation. And rather than us yammering on any more than we already have about the interview, let's get into it. Here's Caleb and I talking with Tracy Conan. Tracy, do you remember when we first met because I, I, for the life of me, I couldn't remember how that happened. It was uh, through through Adrian whenever going concern started. Right at the beginning. Pretty cl- pretty close. And how were you two acquainted? You'll have to remind me. The Sam Mil- Antar. Was there, a Wisconsin, was there a Wisconsin connection? So somehow Sam Antar and there there we didn't know there was a Wisconsin connection at first, but then at one point she was passing through Wisconsin. We actually met up in person at a Vietnamese oh. restaurant. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So let let's 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 we'll we'll start at the beginning. How's that? You you grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up in Wisconsin. How did you get in? How did, how did you get on the accounting track? Like, did you have, were either of your parents into accounting, or like, how did that become the thing early on? No, it was super accidental. So here's oh. the deal: I went to college to uh, get a degree in criminology, and I I did that because I had this uh, fascination always with the criminal justice system. And my career goal was to become a prison warden. 
Oh, wow. And yeah, I know you hear it all the time. So everyone says, yeah, I'd like that. on Shawshank, he really had it going on. <laughs> right. Um, and so my sophomore year of college, uh, there was an elective that was offered within the program called Financial Crime Investigation. It was one of those classes that was only offered once every three or four years. And I was like, oh, hey, that kind of sounds interesting. Mm. If I want to take it, I better take it now because it won't be offered again before I graduate. Took it, fell in love, started taking accounting classes. Now, and, the interesting sorry, thing is- Where did you go to school? Do you Marquette mind University. Marquette. Okay, great. Jesuits. Yeah. So Jesuits, absolutely. So the interesting thing is I am a licensed CPA, but I do not have an accounting degree. I have a criminology degree. Oh, whoa. Greg, I, I think I need a walkthrough on how that works. Yeah. What, how did that, how'd that work? Was it just as like- you super, super easy. There are a certain number of credits in a certain number of accounting and economics and finance topics that you need to have, and then you can qualify to sit for the exam. Gotcha. Okay. So I took all the necessary courses, and there you go. Uh, so to, in terms of, like, what are the sorts of things that you learn in criminology? Are you, are, is it all just classes on profiling people? What, <laughs> what's the, like, like, give me a broad view of what, like, the, the curriculum is in criminology. I, I feel like I should know, but I absolutely don't. So you study theoretical stuff about crimes and criminals and why crime happens and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, You study things like uh, there was a course called probation and parole to understand what that's all about. Not, okay. not only the mechanics of it, but the theory behind it and all that kind of stuff. And you take courses about prisons, right? There was one class about prison. And so there's a, there's a lot of theoretical work and there's so social sociology and social work type of mm -hmm. classes that you take, right? So like juveniles and the justice system and things like that. And you can do, you know, internships where you go to facilities and things like that. Right. I was so lucky to do my internship with the IRS oh. uh, in their criminal investigation division. And it was this really neat experience where I got treated like absolute dirt. And I was like, oh, I guess that's what happens to interns. And, and But this is a really great job because I can do financial crime investigations. So why don't I, as an adult, go get a job with them? Because that'll be a different experience than my internship. And did you? I did. I worked for them for three months. And then I which, said. Which field thanks. office? No, thanks, guys. Right. Which field office were you in? Milwaukee. You're in Milwaukee. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. wow. Is it is it true or is it false that if you're in the criminal investigation division of the IRS that you have to take firearms training and that you pack heat? It is true. So 10 <laughs> weeks of my three months was spent at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. Uh -huh. And part of that was becoming firearm certified. Nice. Wow. Well, I'm not going to lie. It was kind of fun to be there and play cops and robbers and learn how to search a, uh, serve a search warrant okay. and how to arrest people and you know, body slam them and get cuffs on them when they're yeah. struggling and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. That was like one of the highlights of my entire career was going there. It was 10 weeks in the middle of summer. It was hotter Ooh, than blazes. In Georgia. Um, yeah. But I mean, overall, uh, the job itself and the folks that I was supposed to work with, they, it just, it was not a good fit. I mean, I should not be a government employee. I shouldn't be anyone's employee. That's why I've been mm. self-employed for 22 years. There you okay. Go. So MBA, CPA, and then what, then what did you start doing? So I went to work for Arthur Anderson. Oh. And so I was on the audit side, um, but I was a summer start. Um, so I got to do a whole bunch of different things. I did the tax rotation because I wanted to learn that. 
stayed there for about 18 months. And then I went to a local small forensic accounting firm for a couple of years to learn uh, how forensic accounting works in the real world. Mm. And then I left there and hung my own shingle 22 years ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You've been, you've been at it. You've been at it solo for a long time. I've been solo for a long time. Wow. So then, and, and looking at all your online presence, clearly your emphasis is, uh, is fraud in the context of divorce. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Zero. If you love listening to this podcast, you've learned that systems and processes could have prevented many of the frauds we've discussed. Having an accounting system like Zero can help a business create the processes it needs so that it can avoid becoming a future Oh My Fraud episode. Zero lets you set up multiple users, each with their own login and password, so you can accurately assign the proper access to each user. When it comes to accounts payable, Zero pushes all bills through a built-in approval process. Zero's expense management tools ensure that employees only get reimbursed for approved expenses. And because Zero connects directly to banks, you can reconcile and match transactions daily to ensure that any money coming and leaving the bank accounts is what you expected. To become a Zero partner and gain access to free tools, benefits, and rewards for your practice, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash zero. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash X-E-R-O. So that's about a third of what I do. Okay. Um, another third is fraud in the corporate context. So executives stealing, companies cheating one another out of money. Uh, and then the other third, I, I like to just say kind of litigation. So companies fighting over money, maybe estates where brothers and sisters are fighting over money, uh, any kind of shenanigans where there's a question about where did the money go and how much is it? Gotcha. And I always say, I don't get it back for you, but I can tell you where it went. Yeah. Nice. And when, and so what did, what was kind of like when you hung out the shingle for the first time, like what was the thing, what was like your first client that you landed or what was like the early work that you were doing? So it was called whatever I could get. <laughs> so yeah, when I yeah. very, very first started, you know, I said, I'm a forensic accountant, but I took on tax work. I took on bookkeeping for small businesses. I took on anything I could to pay the bills. Um, what I actually did the second I hung out the shingle is I ran to a temp agency that placed accountants and I got a job temping so that I could, you know, pay the rent with some part-time temping and then in the rest of my time, try to work my contacts and stuff like that. And so uh, early on, I got business from a couple of clients that I had worked with at my previous employer. I had reached out and said, you know, I'm not here to steal any work from my previous employer. But I know that we did a couple projects that went really well and you were really happy with what I did. I don't care where you live in the United States. If you're a CPA, you have to take ethics continuing education. And I don't care who you are and where you live. You hate taking ethics continuing education. That's why me, Greg Kite, and my buddy, Adam Browd, we created a podcast called Drunk Ethics, where we unfold and uh, expose all of the inner secrets of not just ethics, but how to become more ethical and to promote ethical behavior at your workplace. And we do that while we are getting progressively more shit 
faced during the course of each episode. In each episode, we take seven shots every seven minutes. And so at the beginning, we are scholarly. And by the end, we are drunk yet still scholarly. If you're interested in this podcast, which I know you are, anyone can listen to the podcast for free. It's out there. You can find it. But if you want CPE credit for it, NASBA certified CPE credit, it is a premium course on Earmark. So if you're already a subscriber to Earmark, it's going to be more than that. But listen, it's worth it because of two reasons. First off, you know your company. You know your firm's going to pay for it and not you. And second of all, it's worth it, damn it. So I did temp stuff for probably about six months, and then I started teaching college courses at night to help pay the rent. It was a grind to get a business that could actually support myself. I mean, I totally underestimated how long it would take to get clients. I mean, I really started with no professional network. Um, I didn't have clients of my own really to take from my from my previous employer. I was just, you know, I was young staff, and so I was just at the point with them where they had said. Uh, it's probably about time for you to start bringing in business of your own. And that actually factored into my decision to hang my own shingle because I thought, well, if I'm going to be doing business development, why not just do it for myself? Makes makes a lot of sense. Is Anything else uh, in terms of just your journey professionally? This That's all. So you're teaching college. You're doing temp work. You started your own firm. You were hustling, hustling. You had the Arthur Anderson back there, which, by the way, that so, yeah, that. That must have been right. You did you leave right before the Enron stuff happened? That I'm trying to do the math backwards for twenty two. A couple of years before that happened. Okay, yeah, gotcha. So, um, yeah. So, uh, but but then you you got your legs underneath you with your your own firm, and you've been just happily uh, rooting out the bad guys ever since then. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Nice. You know, one of the things that I wanted to do when I started my own firm was do fixed fees because I hated the hourly billing model. Mm. So I've been doing fixed fees for 22 years. Nice. Oh, wow. Good for Wonderful. you. Well, you're, you were, and you're preaching you were on the choir. It early. Yeah, you're preaching the choir there. I, I, I am, uh, I've been working with Ron Baker and his whole, uh, you know, Kill the Bill Blower group for, gosh, about 15 years now myself. So Tracy, did, was there a... What was, was there a, like a big job? Was there a, a client that you landed or like a big assignment that you got that made you feel like, oh, I am, I'm like where, where, where you kind of shifted from, um, you know, you weren't faking it anymore. Not that you were ever faking it, but you were then, then you're like, oh, okay, this, this client like means I'm really doing what I want to do. Like, did, is there one thing that sticks out in your mind? They're like, oh, this is the big job. Like this, that, that's the job that changed everything. Well, you know, so it took me a while to develop enough of a base to support myself, right? It took me a few years to do that. And then I started supporting myself and that was all fine and well, but I plateaued and I'm like, I don't get why I can't get my billings beyond a certain level. I've got this great offering. I'm fantastic at what I do. All this stuff, like I should be able to make a lot of money being a forensic accountant. And it was 2015 when I finally found the Holy Grail and just figured out how you do really, really well as a solo forensic accountant. So yes, there is that moment. There is that year. I can point to 2015 as being the year. Gotcha. 
But it wasn't one job. No. It wasn't like one. Okay, big so job it was one job. It was okay. my billionaire divorce. Fine. It was the billionaire oh. divorce. Oh. Yeah. That was a really, really big job. But somehow it just it just made it I just saw the light as to how to make it work and do big jobs yeah, and yeah. get big fees and and stuff like that. So yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, sorry, I didn't mean to I mean it is an interview, so I guess I do mean to pry. Greg. You don't mean to pry. I, yeah, mean, I, was, I was playing coy because I thought that that would be fun. That it is it's very fun. <laughs> it was. I like it. The big reveal. This is good TV is what this is. Now, I've got some nuts and bolts questions because, again, just from a cursory view of your, of your websites, one of the things, again, the thing that stuck out to me was the divorce work that you do in terms of who's hiding money and, and trying to, you know, uh, be shady during their divorce. And one of the things that you have on there is the red flags, kind of like what, what are some indicators that this may or may not, that this is happening to you. But you said that since the divorce stuff is about a third of your practice and another third is like just corporate, uh, you know, fraud investigation. I, I'm, I guess two questions. What are the main red flags that that stuff's happening? And are, I, I'm hoping, I'm wondering, is it the same for both, uh, you know, because generally fraud, there's there's so much similarities in terms of just criminal behavior. Is it the same red flags for both arenas? Sure, there's a lot of overlap in the red flags. I think the difference is that in the divorce context, it's very personal one-on-one interactions that I'm asking people to look at and analyze um, to determine if there's a red flag. So, so the personal aspect there versus like on the corporate level, there's corporate type interactions that make the red flags look a little bit different. Um, but so you're right, uh, you know, divorce being only about a third of my work. However, I've sort of taken um, some time this year to focus on the divorce side and providing resources to people who are getting divorced and who are seeing some of these red flags, but they probably don't know yet quite that they're red flags, right? Okay. So someone is contemplating divorce in the process of divorce often there are suspicions about money. And my question is, well, is Chad just a jerk? Or, and so you're going to be suspicious of everything he does, or is there really something you can point to that's a little bit more concrete that you can tell me with specificity is um, making you suspicious? Um, so some of the things that we look at in terms of behavior, has your spouse become more controlling over the money? Okay. Right. Where they don't want you involved. They don't want you to know things. Or have they taken away your access to information? Previously, you could log into the bank account and now you can't. And when you say, hey, did you change the password? They're saying to you, oh, yeah, I, I got locked out and I had to change it. But don't worry, I've got it under control. And they find excuses to not give you that password, things like that. And uh, a third big one, changes in spending patterns or spending behaviors. So I like to say uh, your husband maybe never went to the ATM before or very rarely did because you guys don't spend a lot of cash. And suddenly you see he's going to the ATM once or twice a week, uh, taking out three, four, five hundred dollars, maybe even more at a time and can't really account for that. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. What, so it, in terms of that sort of stuff, just just getting into some of the weeds, because this is interesting to me when when people are. When they're when they're separating, when they're getting divorced, when when is it typical for them to like split their finances? Is is it at the point of like like meet? Because that's what in, in my divorce when that happened was 
we went to mediation after that all the game plan was laid out that's when we started you know we got our own checking accounts and we weren't spending each other's uh money it was we were on our own is that is that typical or does it usually happen before that it really varies because it's going to depend on whether or not you each have your own independent source of money that can support you right right there's still a lot of families where one parent is a stay at home often still it's the mom right and doesn't have a source of income of her own and it's maybe not practical to split the finances yet or especially if there isn't a temporary order in place saying you're going to get x dollars a month to pay bills with so there are a lot of situations where they continue to manage the finances together at least for a period of time while they're in the divorce process right but then going back to is chad just is he a, is he a jerk or is he uh you know being is he doing something shady and you go okay well chad could be a jerk where he's 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 the breadwinner his spouse is the stay at home uh parent and then he just goes we're getting a divorce so i'm opening my own check account and all my direct deposits are going in there and you're gonna have to beg me for any money that you want is that I mean, again, I where is is it because that happens way too often. Yeah, way too often. And and again, how do you have a way of of like rooting out if he's just being a dick or if he's uh or or if he's actually like trying to hide stuff in that situation? Well, certainly, the way that we would figure out if he's trying to hide something is by going through all the banking credit card statements and taking a look at all the spending to see where all the money is going. Okay. Um, and in a very simple, straightforward sense, when we see money getting siphoned off, you know, a cash withdrawal and we don't know where that money went right. or a payment to a, a strange sounding company that we've never done business with or things like that. Um, that's when we're getting evidence that Chad is doing something shady. Right. And so is the and Caleb. Sorry if I'm monopolizing here for a minute. So is is the main thing that we're looking at in this is going you've you've stockpiled assets or cash somewhere and those are not being disclosed during the financial proceedings of the divorce process well there's that piece but there's another one can you guess what it is greg i can't because oh is it that i'm not making as much money like i'm trying to show that my income is lower than what it really is that's a good one that's a good issue as well but there's another big one mm. Mm. It, uh, sex drugs and rock and roll so Oh, addiction? Addiction or affairs. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like to call it the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, okay. Addictions and affairs. So, so think of it like this. Uh, we're looking for what I would more properly call inappropriate spending. Okay. Or spending for non-marital purposes. Okay. Because I'm pretty sure that an affair is a non-marital purpose. Okay. I'm going to say, yeah, that's probably mm -hmm. it, it outside, outside of the... The very rare case of successful polyamory. Yes, I'm going to say that's the case. Successful, you say. Right, right. Successful is relative. So, okay. so Tracy, I, something I'm curious about is, well, I maybe a couple of questions. Number one, I have to imagine that your criminology background plays a lot into how you approach your work. And so I'm just curious about the psychological and sociological aspects of it. Like, how does that manifest in like your day-to-day -day, day -day work? That's number one. And number two, are you, do you, there's gotta be, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's gotta be a part of you that says, geez, we'd have a lot better CPAs if more of them studied criminology. 
hey, maybe that's, that's a loaded one. question, but so right, those are my two questions. That's a fair question. Um, so I think my background in criminology affects how I think about things and how I approach things. And, and so I'm naturally suspicious and I naturally like to snoop. And so criminology awesome. sort of also fed into all of that, right? I mean, yep. it, all this circular thing, it, it just all feeds on itself. And so I have this inquisitive mind. I'm always digging for more. I'm always being skeptical. And certainly, I think that's what makes me a really, really good investigator. But I do think that a lot of that is is intuitive or innate. And so there's only so much I can teach someone else about mm. investigating fraud, because to some extent, there has to be um, just a natural ability to to sense when things aren't correct. Right. Mm. So I'll work on a fraud investigation sometimes where I'm looking at a whole bunch of transactions, trying to trace the money. And I'll come up with a list of 10 transactions and go back to the CFO and say, hey, I've got these transactions I need you to look at and see, see what you can tell me about these. And the CFO will look at them and say, uh, these aren't right. Why did, you, why did you pull these out of all of our transactions? And I'll say, I don't know why they don't look right to me either. I just know that they didn't look right. And so I wanted to ask you about them, mm-hmm. right? And that's just... That's just, I think, a talent that I was blessed with. Uh, and so I exploit it every day in pursuit of my career. And yeah. I so don't have that talent. My whenever anybody's like, you gotta follow your gut, I'm like, oh no, not my, not my gut. I don't, I have zero like like even at my day job. So back this is back in the day uh when I first started working here, there was a dad boss and he had hired his son to manage one of our other properties son was not a good manager and and just so like so so much about him was sketchy to me and at one point i was like i was like i think he forged these checks with our because they didn't they the one thing they did right is that these the dad and the son didn't give themselves check signing powers and i'm like he totally forged the signature on these checks and so i i went to the dad and I was like, I think, I think your son's been stealing money by forging these checks. And he's like, Oh, well, that's unfortunate, which was a weird, he wasn't like, no, he didn't. It was like, Oh, that might. And, but then I went to the guy who signed him and I was like, these signatures don't look right. And he's like, no, they look right to me. Fine. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh no, I'm the worst at this. So yeah, no, no gut ability, but you can, you can like let, narrow in on them. Cause you've got, Sometimes there's just a feel, Greg, and I can't even tell you what it is about it. Yeah. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by SoftLedger. SoftLedger is a real-time cloud accounting software platform that enables accountants, CFOs, and developers to manage multiple entities, integrate with other systems, and close the books faster. SoftLedger has everything you would expect from a cloud accounting app like an adaptable GL, bank feed data, automated AP and AR, financial reporting, and cash flow tools. But SoftLedger is more advanced than other accounting packages on the market as it can handle multi-currency, multiple businesses, properties, investments, sub-ledgers, and SoftLedger is the first full-featured accounting system that supports crypto multi-wallet asset management with seamless integrations to crypto exchanges, giving you real-time transactional crypto accounting and reporting. 
SoftLedger is fully programmable via their API. This allows your team of developers to create your own accounting functionality or easily connect SoftLedger to other software you may be using. To learn more about using SoftLedger and to get 25% off your first three months when you mention the Oh My Fraud podcast, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash softledger. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash S-O-F-T-L-E-D-G-E-R. Okay, but back to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. Wait, have- wait, wait. No, she owes me an answer on the other one, which is, oh. do you think more CPAs could benefit from either your background or, I mean, certainly your intuition, okay? I think we could all use some of your intuition. But yeah. like, is criminology as like a, as a facet of a total package of like what accounts, especially auditors. I think that's, let's be more explicit, but I think, because auditors, they're supposed to be like, you. you have this natural suspicion or skepticism. I mean, and it seems like auditors don't have that enough. And I mean, to you, like you said, part of it's intuitive, but part of it is obviously you studied it. You, you, like you understand psychology, you understand the sociological aspects and those things. And I just wonder, cause it's been brought up by other people like Sam Antar used to talk about this, but like the psychology in, of the criminal mind is one of those things where he's like, auditors don't understand this shit, but they need to, because this is where it's happening. Like this is where it's easy to hide and very sophisticated people are are taking part in this so i'm just curious if you agree with that or if you think it's kind of like yeah you know whatever i agree with sam and i I certainly think that a criminology element to you know an auditor's repertoire would be helpful but it's probably not going to happen right you know we talk all the time about professional skepticism and as an auditor when you're given information don't just accept that you got to take that information think about it critically do some follow-up um in one of the Uh, sessions that I teach for internal auditors, I talk a lot about, I I try to give them like easy tips that they can use to try to find more fraud. And one of them is when, you know, your client answers your question, gives you some information, gives you a reason for whatever it is that you're questioning, go back to one of your coworkers and tell them the story that you've just been told. Give them the explanation and have them ask you questions about it and see if you can answer their questions. And they're going to hopefully, if they're a good question asker, they're going to poke holes in what you're telling them. And you will know that you need to go back to the client and ask some follow up questions and get more information. But, you know, I see too many auditors just taking an answer at face value and then pass, you know, move on. Right. Yep. So, so you're, so you, you think to, to spice up things in the internal audit department, you need to, people need to do more role play. Fine. Fine, Greg. You had to go there. I think no. I what? Um. So, but I I still I'm I'm hung up on the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. Can we go back? Please there for, get, go back to it. Yes, please. Um, it's my fault for even bringing it up. No, no, so no. fine. It, it's She's but, right, but it's Greg. but it's so interesting to me. Everything that you it, it, with the sex, drugs, and rock and roll side of things are is part of what you're saying is that you're looking through the financial like like let's say that one of the one of the spouses uh is is thinking oh I, I not so much that they're they've been you know putting money into a lockbox and burying it out under the shed but but one of the spouses is going no I think he's been cheating on me and you go oh well let's figure that out through uh, through the money is that is that part of what you do as uh, for your job 
So it can be either that they know there was an affair and they want to know how much was spent on it, or they have suspicions of an affair and they're wondering, do we have any financial evidence of it? Okay. Right. So looking through credit cards, statements and bank statements and finding things like excessive dinners out jewelry that the wife didn't receive, purchases at Victoria's Secret. I don't know why these idiots always go to Victoria's Secret for the girlfriends, but they just do. Or things like the ATM machine at a strip club. How do you know it's an ATM machine at a strip club? Because on the credit card bill or, or the bank statement, there will be a transaction for an unusual sounding LLC, you know. (laughs) Three Brothers LLC. And you're like, what the hell is Three Brothers? And it'll have a city and a state. And so you start Googling. And if you Google enough and know what you're looking for, you finally find out it's an ATM at a strip club. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're just trying to find all of these kinds of charges and quantify that because half of whatever was spent on that is, you know, the other spouse's money. And so I've been involved in cases where we found, you know, $100,000, $200,000 spent on affairs. And we want credit back for that in the divorce. Okay, gotcha. That, yep. And that's where I was going to go. Is like, where does that? How does that factor? Because I know that, like, uh, you know, it, it just the fact of having a divorce, at least in the state of Utah where I live, it doesn't that doesn't really play into how the money is end up ended up divided. But what you're saying is that if you can say, oh, there was a bunch of money during the marriage that was spent on things that were clearly, you know, outside of the boundaries of this marriage, then you have a claim for 50% of that back. Right. Nice. Okay. Very interesting. I learned now with, and same with the drugs. If it's like, Hey, you've had a raging Adderall addiction. Uh, and, and half of that money that was spent on Adderall shouldn't have been spent on Adderall. Same kind of thing. For sure. I mean, certainly with drugs, uh, with prostitutes, it's harder to, uh, prove that because a lot of times there's cash transactions, right? Okay. Um, but you know, we'll be looking for that $5,000 cash withdrawal that the spouse can't account for. We we've got his signature on the withdrawal slip. So we know he took it out. If he can't account for it. I default to, um, you owe half back. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so it's, it's, there's not always a full paper trail to be able to follow, to know what the money was spent on, but certainly we can add up uh, money that is not accounted for. Gotcha. And that we that is no no known purpose, you know, or, you know, you think of things and it's not only the cash withdrawal, it's things like, um, you know, Greg, your paycheck, for whatever reason, you don't have direct deposit, you still get an actual paycheck and you run to the bank and deposit it, but you siphon off a thousand dollars every paycheck in cash and only put the balance of your paycheck in the bank account. Your spouse maybe never noticed that all along. But we can go back and figure out what was siphoned off in that way. And again, Greg, if you can't account for what happened with that cash, we will assume that it was for nefarious purposes. Gotcha. And then I'm assuming the rock and roll portion of this is that if one of the spouses is buying a lot of uh, like Rush albums, because Rush is just objectively a shitty band and that any spouse would be like, this is not an acceptable way to spend our marital funds. On on Rush, on Neil Diamond, on Josh Josh Groban, those I'm sorts of things. Excited for the hate mail. I'm excited for the hate mail. Who are you trolling at this point? You're trolling someone with the Rush references, aren't no, you? No, oh yeah, tro- yeah. Rush. I'm trolling Rush. Have you listened to the? Have you heard their music and their fans, Greg? <laughs> and their fans. They're the they're the they worst. Be, they're they're coming for us now. Yeah, and now which I is know exciting, I'm- but also whatever. 
How about if we call the rock and roll, we just use that to refer to any sort of other vices or or spending that was not in the best interest of the marriage. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And that that's the scope of that is seems limitless. Yeah. So what so so let's so if I may, Tracy, you what may. is the weirdest or most interesting thing you've come across in the rock and roll category? I mean, there's prostitutes, there's strip clubs, there's, I mean, drug use. I mean, these kinds of things that normally where you would expect the the cheating, we'll just yeah. say it, cheating husband but, most of the time. And prostitutes and strip clubs to me would be categorized under the sex part of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yes. And that's what I'm saying. So like setting all that stuff aside, I mean, and maybe there's, you know, but the, I'm just curious about what are the more interesting kind of uh inappropriate spending that you've seen. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how interesting you will think this is, but what I've seen on more than one occasion is people who want to be day traders and they oh. end up like wasting like the 401k sure. and investments that they had. I mean, I've seen that enough times. Like, and don't get me wrong, I like day trading too. It is it is fun and interesting and you can make money doing it if you know what you're doing. And most people who get involved don't know how to do it. And right. therefore they lose all of their family's money. And now mm. when you bring crypto into it, so now we're having cases where like, hey, I know my husband put some money into crypto and he won't tell me anything about it. We don't know how much, oh. how much is there and did it lose value or is it worth millions? And I don't even know. So it's getting Not more good. interesting by the day. Yeah, yeah. like that, that, that shit is getting real right now. Well, yeah, you know, uh, a year ago, two mm -hmm. years ago, everyone's like, oh, it must be worth millions. And now it's like, yeah, uh, we don't know if, if <laughs> what, what it's worth, if anything. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the uh, NFT stuff is, that's always been a somewhat bizarre market. So what... Uh, well, well, I guess I've got so I've got so many questions. I don't know which ones are going to be the interesting ones. What, I've got one. If you need to think on it, Greg, let me. If, let, if it's not interesting, I'll just tell you. Okay, t I got. Let me let me just because I think this will help wrap up the rock and roll side of things. So, the these rock and roll day traders are wasting all the money with the 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 families four hundred one k all their savings on this day trading because they're shitty at day trading. Isn't that, but, but like you're getting divorced because in that case, cause your partner's a fucking idiot. And so isn't that kind of like, but, but you can actually get like, like somehow go, no, you were the idiot and you lost this money because you're an idiot. So that shouldn't have affected me. Is that? Well, so that's really interesting because there are cases where the defense is, you knew I was day trading. You agreed yeah. to it. Like we made this decision together okay. and now you're mad because I lost all the money. Okay. Um, and so, so it's not, it's not a clear cut situation. It really depends on what happened in your marriage. Right. But let's say he was secretly day trading. Okay. Right. Gotcha. Judges aren't, judges don't like that. If you're, you know, losing all of the family's money. Um, hopefully there is some way for the remaining assets to be divided in an unequal way to make the wife whole. Right. Um, so if there's equity in the house, maybe she can be awarded a larger portion of the equity. But I'll tell you this. If your husband was wasting all the money, losing it on day trading, he probably also took out a home equity loan. And so there's probably no equity in the house anyway. Like it can get really bad. I've seen it get really, really bad where like everything is gone. Yeah. Okay. 
I get that. And and is the defense, I was an idiot when you married me. You knew that I was an idiot. How can you hold that against me at this point? I, I don't think that's a good argument, but I think that you agreed to let me be an idiot is a is a pretty good argument. Okay, mm. gotcha. All right. Very nice. That is an int- very, very subtle nuance. I like that nuance. Yeah. yeah. I like that a yeah, lot. Yeah, we had an explicit conversation about me being an idiot. Me being an idiot. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Caleb, what so, was your what was your question? Yeah, my question is, I think on your website you say something about, you know, having a forensic accountant kind of having your back in these proceedings is something that isn't just for rich people. Like you're trying to like give regular folks that are going through these things, you know, uh, access to a professional like yourself. So I'm just, I just would love to hear you talk about that a little bit and why you're trying to kind of, because like you said, so yourself, like the thing that kind of made you have the aha moment was the billionaire divorce. But like your, 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 your website seems to suggest that it's like, look, this isn't just for billionaire divorces. This is for regular people that, you know, they 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 don't have a billion dollars, but the wealth that they've built is important. And when you're going through these proceedings, it needs to be fair. And and the statistics show that women are disproportionately worse off after the divorce than they are in the marriage. So it's a big risk to them financially. So I just want to just hear your thoughts on on that. So you're so right. Standard of living after divorce typically goes down because even if you're both earning the same, um, there's now two houses to pay for instead of one, right? But proportionately speaking, that standard of living drops further for women in the vast majority of cases than it does for men. So super interesting. Um, but yes, so forensic accountant in a divorce. I think that probably 95% of people who are divorcing can't afford one. Hmm. You know, it takes... $10,000 to get started with a forensic accountant in a divorce. And I just don't think, you know, it, divorces are expensive. Legal fees are expensive. And to plunk this on top of it, unaffordable. Uh, in many cases, there are suspicions, but the amount of money at stake might not warrant paying those kinds of fees. And so personally being a little bit frustrated that I could not help more people with their divorces and wanting a resource to be available, I came up with a divorce money guide. So typically. If you go, you're getting divorced and you say, I have suspicions about the money and your divorce attorney is going to say, well, you know, do you have $10,000 for a forensic accountant? You say, no, your divorce attorney is going to say, well, then there's nothing we can do about it. And I wasn't happy with that answer. I wasn't happy with people calling me saying I need help and me saying, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to help you. Uh, here's a couple articles you can go read. Well, that was, that was worthless to them to send them to read a couple of articles. And so the divorce money guide is a solution to the problem, not a full solution, but it is some sort of some level of forensic accounting help in sort of a do it yourself process. I like to say do it yourself with expert assistance. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the whole concept there. I want I want to flip the conversation back to the court to the corporate side of what you do. Um, what are some of the <laughs> why it's so much it's so much less interesting. It's so much less juicy. Uh, I, I assume, or is it like, do you, when you get into some of the, some of the corporate side of things, I mean, are you seeing these massive embezzlements where people are defrauding their, uh, their partners out of, you know, millions of dollars of, of cash? Uh, what, and, and where does most of your work land? Is it on the embezzlement side, the asset misappropriation side, or is it more on the financial statement fraud side for your work specifically? Um, the corporate stuff uh, is more embezzlement. For me, it's usually upper level 
um, management and executives. Mm. Um, so larger fraud schemes. And so it does get interesting because um, these ladies and gentlemen do interesting things in furtherance of their schemes. And it's always interesting to see how long these things were going on and what signs might have been noticed by someone but weren't. Um, it's interesting seeing you know, that there were controls that were supposed to be in place that were not functioning or someone was overriding them and nobody was checking up on it. So I would say equally as interesting, Greg. Yeah. So where, where, uh, what were some of the things that you, I mean, you're just saying that you, you, sometimes it sounds like you're surprised at the manner, the, the way that people are siphoning off those funds from their company. Is there, is there something that sticks out to you in your memory that was like, oh, that was like, like once you got in, you go, oh, that was a good one. That was, I did not see that one coming. I'm less surprised by the methods and more surprised by the fact that these methods weren't caught sooner. Oh, okay. I mean, I just, um, I recently got involved with a company where they have a whole bunch of, uh, they have, let's call it $3 million worth of a question mark and that they don't know where this money went. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, it's, it's going to be that it got siphoned out through accounts receivable. And the thing is that the person who is in charge of the accounts receivable, they say that she knew, they knew that she had some performance problems, but nobody was ever reconciling anything and no one was really checking up on her and there came a point where the performance problems got too much. And so they decided to fire her. And on her way out the door, she literally turned, stopped, turned around and said, I can't believe it took you guys this long to do it. And then she walked out the door. And that still didn't turn a light bulb on for anyone until about <laughs> six months later. Right. So they, so it wasn't the embezzlement that sent her out the door. That's not what she was saying. It took you this long. But oh, that is that's absolutely what, she, what she's saying. She thought is, she was getting fired for that. Yeah. Okay. And she wow. Was not. That's uh, amazing. Right. What um do you? Uh, how often when you when you see something like that? Because again, we look at statistics and things like that, and it shows that very. It's a very small percentage of of embezzlement and fraud cases that actually get handed over to law enforcement. Um, but, but I think that that percentage goes down once they, somebody hires a forensic accountant. Do you, what's the, what's the percentages that you see? Are you, are you even privy to that information of what's sent over to law enforcement and what's not? In my cases, I would say it's an extremely low number that's sent to law enforcement. Really? Yeah. Well, because the thing is that you don't have any control over what law enforcement does. It's just another burden on the company. Um, they probably don't want the publicity of it, the potential publicity. They're embarrassed. They're afraid they might lose customers because of it. And so the reputational risk combined with, oh, my God, we've already lost so much money. We've already lost so much time investigating it. Let's just put this behind us. And so what I see more often is let's put in an insurance claim for whatever coverage we have to try to get money back that way. Let's maybe do a civil suit against the person if we think that they have some assets that we can attach to, like a house that's not encumbered with a big mortgage or something like that. Uh, but I think more so the tendency uh, with my clients is they just want to move forward. Yeah. Hmm. And they want to get back to doing business. Right. And I, I think, the um, I, again, with my own personal experience, I, it, I know that embarrassment 
is such a huge motivator for for how people deal with fraud where the people who you know like like you were saying there's there's uh controls that are in place that were just ignored weren't working properly or were overridden and nobody nobody caught that and even if it's even if you've got a great excuse for not catching it there's still this like embarrassment that it happened on your watch or uh, you know under your uh, under the banner of your leadership uh, e- again sure. even if that's not something that anyone would expect you to do would be to micromanage accounts receivable to make sure people aren't skimming stuff off right tracy i wonder be- just because of the nature of the work and you said you said earlier that you know you're you, you're kind of naturally a suspicious person does that that doesn't necessarily make you a cynic so i'm just curious does your work make you cynical because you're dealing with like some unsavory characters you're dealing with you know thorny issues of like marital strife and like and betrayal and these kinds of things and it it can be hairy stuff and so i'm just wondering like i'm jaded yeah yeah i'm jaded i've always been a cynic but i'm more jaded yeah and so is so so in the nature of so then if 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 that's the case is 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 finding some justice for your clients is that part of what motivates you it's less for me about the justice and more just having them know right Mm. i want them to know what happened and whatever they decide to do with that however they want to pursue it i sort of i'm not really partial to that one way or another Uh, but really just the pursuit of the truth i think is is where it's at for me gotcha yeah. And when you say that you're jaded, is that basically is is your perception of humans in general just that by and large there's just a lot of shit bags that exist in the world? Is that is that what you mean by you're jaded? I mean everybody lies. Yeah. Like everybody's always lying to me, right? Yeah. I'm always thinking they're lying. I'm always suspicious of them. Yeah. And yeah. do you, and you feel like you've you've have evidence that everybody because it sounds like you're just thinking that's how the world everybody cheats everybody lies this is such a bleak existence that we live in is that is has that been confirmed empirically for you you know i think that um no that would be that would be too cynical now you're taking it too far okay good. no good that's what yeah, i want to hear that no that's good though. Yeah, yeah that's that's what i was trying to plumb out so you know, what's really funny is even though I'm saying I'm cynical and I think everyone's lying, the truth is, like in my personal private life interactions, I probably give people too much benefit of the doubt. And I think that their motivations are true. And if they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it, right? And then when they don't follow through, I'm like, oh, shock. No, they didn't follow through. Because because in my life, when I say I'm going to do something, I always follow through. That's just what I do. But I said I was going to do it. And so I somehow seem to expect that from my friends and family and such. And then I'm I'm just aghast when it doesn't happen the way I thought it was going to. Right. Your, your profession kind of tees you up to be lied to more than the average barista. Yeah. My profession sets me up for being questioning and suspicious and, and digging in to whatever I'm being told to, yeah. to see. Is there a way to verify? Yeah. Trust, but verify. Yeah. How about you kinda- that? You kind of get you kind of get a, a secret inside look into kind of the worst behavior that people are are doing. I do. I, I see. I see people doing the worst. I see uh, victims at their most vulnerable. I see them being embarrassed 
at, at being a victim. Uh, I see them uh, feeling shame because in order to sort out what's happened to them, they have to open up their financial lives to me. I often think in my daily spending, like, you know, if someone was looking at what I was spending my money on, would they be like, man, she's got a problem. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, what about, so in the, so the third, the third part of your, of your portfolio of business that you have is you said it was like litigation where you've got, and specifically you mentioned something about if there's a, if there's a, an inheritance situation where people are worried that they're getting screwed there, is that, uh, do you have, do you have any great juicy tales of people? Cause, cause again, I'm assuming what it is is that like one of the heirs had more control over the assets as the decedent was passing away and therefore took liberties with that to line their own pockets. Yeah. I mean, there aren't super interesting stories about how that goes down because I mean, it, they just help themselves the money. I think um, maybe what's a little more interesting in that regard is um, I had a couple of cases last year criminal defense cases, which I, I really enjoy working for criminal defendants. Uh, super interesting stuff. My clients were both accused of stealing money from their elderly clients. Hmm. Um, they were home health caregivers who became trusted friends, associates, whatever you want to call it, of these elderly people who then let them write checks on their behalf and things like that. And my clients ended up running off with money. Mm. And the question ended up being, how much money did they really run off with? Right. Um, so those kinds of cases are sad, uh, but also interesting. Uh, the psychological stuff going on there is super interesting. Yeah. Is it? And then with that, I'm assuming that a lot of your work, because obviously there's the misappropriation of, uh, of like money. There's also misappropriation of, of like personal property, things of that nature. Is do you kind of run up against a brick wall in terms of trying to trace down, you know, items that might have gotten pilfered? I don't typically deal with that. I just deal yeah. with the money side of it. Right. Because yeah, I would I would think that that's a whole lot more difficult to go. Where did the you know, where where did this uh, painting go to? It's like what painting that kind of. Right. That, OK. Yeah. Very nice. What do you think, Greg? I think. What do you think, Tracy? Do we get it? I think what's more interesting on that third piece is damage calculations. So economic damages that companies suffer, like when, you know, when contracts go bad, things like that. Yeah. Um, those are super interesting because what you have to do is you have to be able to calculate what would have happened if this contract had gone as planned versus what did happen. And there's assumptions involved in that. And then you get picked on a lot as the expert witness. Well, yeah. why did you assume this? And that's too aggressive or things like that. So I, I, I enjoy those cases. I enjoy even more being on the side of the case that is picking on the damage calculation. Okay. Right? So being a rebuttal expert yeah. is fun. Gotcha. Because you, cause so, you've, seen, you, you've gotten picked on enough. You know how it works. You know how to dish correct. it out. Yeah, for sure. Nice. I dig it. Very good. Uh so la last question for me then Tracy is let's you know, let's say you wind up uh, your your job, you wind up your firm, you kind of you you sell it, you do whatever your succession plan is there. Do you have hopes of going back and picking up your career as a warden for a prison at that point? Kind of like a 
you know, a, fi- a final, a swan song. Could you imagine me being a prison warden realistically? I mean, that would be rough. I don't, I don't think that I would do, uh, do very well at it, okay. to be honest. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's no plans, Greg. When I retire, I'm just going to be done. Just, just, That's it. Uh, just my ties in a beach. Yep. Nice. I like it. The, the the prison warden job that is a weird passion project. I would say, like if you, there's no. But there's it, no, it legitimately was like no side I hustle. was I was so focused. I had done all sorts of research. Yeah. Into having a career as a prison warden, and I was like down for it. Yeah. Is there, is there, it, I assume there's probably, like you said, it's, it's a government job still. So there's maybe some decent benefits, but not great pay. I'm assuming as a prison warden. No, I, I don't think so. And I don't think that at that point I cared as much about the pay as I did about doing something that I was super interested in. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. As, as, as we do when we're young. Foolishly. Foolishly. Follow the money. I always say. There you go. That's it. Hey. But certainly you could find something you're passionate about that makes you a decent bit of money, right? Yeah. I'd like to think. Yeah. But I I think that's probably, I mean, again, this is me being jaded and having children who are starting college where I go, yeah, uh, an art major probably isn't, isn't going to be the way. I recommend gender studies. Gender studies? Yes. As as the way to to get the, the, the stacks that of cash. lucrative, yeah, yeah that guaranteed right. paycheck, yeah, man. That and philosophy. Those are the real money makers. Bachelor of Fine Arts. Yeah. All the way. Yep, exactly. So, Tracy, where can people go to find everything that they need? I'm sure there's tons of questions that have been spawned in people's minds. Where can people find you and where can people find some of the resources that you've created? So, they can find me on Instagram at Divorce Money Guide. Uh, they can find the Divorce Money Guide at divorcemoneyguide.com. Um, my corporate website is sequenceinc.com. Very, very good. So, uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds great. I think, uh, Caleb, I think we got what we need, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, great. A lot of great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for good. sure. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Thank you for coming on the, the show. And you've got, you've got Thanks a very, having me. very unique practice and very unique experience. It was, it was very fun to, to hear to hear your story and what you do. It was great talking with you guys. Likewise. Yeah. Awesome. So Greg, that was great. Um, I think we learned something. Did we learn anything? We, uh, we absolutely, I, I absolutely learned some stuff, Caleb. Oh, Uh, good. First off, I had no idea that money spent by one spouse on non-marital shit can factor into the division of assets. I had no idea about that. She, I mean, obviously she did make it clear that like it had to be kind of a secret behind the scenes. Like I'm doing this without, you know, without this being fully agreed upon by both partners. But I, I, I really didn't know that at all because I thought, you know, she, she talked about like if, if one of the spouses is a, just a dumb shit that, that, yeah. that, you know, that, that, that can, that can factor into it. And it's not it, cause, cause I kind of go, if you, if you just happen to marry, so, you know, it's, it's kind of like what, if you married someone who ended up being just a, a lazy slob mm-hmm. that sucks, but you married a lazy slob. So if you marry someone who's just a, you know, 
has shit for brains and makes horrible financial decisions or is day trading, then yeah. that's who you got. And that's why you're getting divorced and it's not going to be fun. But, but anyway, so like I said, I didn't know that could factor into it at all. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and part of that, it just reflects on the fact that you don't know what you don't know when you're, because I've even been through the process and I didn't know that, yeah. which is why uh, one of the many reasons why it seems like her, her guide would be a hugely valuable to her divorce or money divorce guide. Yeah. I think for me, what, what was validated in this conversation is that divorce is one of those things where, you know, we have pretty, I don't know quite how, you, what the quite way to do. I guess what I'm trying to say is in the United States, it's easy to get a divorce, right? Like yeah. in Colorado, if I'm not mistaken, somebody will fact check me on this. This is a no fault state and like no fault, like when no fault divorce laws became a thing, like it was extremely controversial because that's back, you know, when the, the U.S. was even more Puritan than it is today. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, and people are just like, oh, you know, there was a lot of curl, pearl clutching around these non no fault divorce laws. But what it did is it really, it, it allowed people, it allowed mostly women, let's be honest, it, it allowed women to get out of bad marriages, right? Yeah. But, yeah, the, yeah. But, but what remains, I think, to this day and what Tracy validated in the conversation was that women are disproportionately, when women get divorced, they are disproportionately put at, um, at, at, at they're, they're in much worse financial situations than they are uh, prior to getting divorced. So even if they get out of a bad marriage, they do put themselves in a uh, in a precarious financial situation, and so something like the divorce money guide is something that I think could be a very useful resource to a lot of people. A lot of those people, you know, being women most likely, because it it, it is it, it it that is in terms of like the the kind of the consequences of divorce is being in a situation where you are in a financially worse place yeah and, and trying to and trying to get yourself as soft a landing as possible on right. the other side of it right yeah that's and i think and i think that's it what you were just saying is that you're not gonna even if you do even if you even if you have the ten thousand dollars minimum to hire a, a you know cff to go yep. through all your stuff you still might not find much you might not you might right. not get the bang for your buck because you just don't right. know what's what's what may or may not be hidden and maybe again maybe it's just your natural suspicions have been uh peaked because of the the horrible thing you're going through right with this with this former lover of yes yes so i also was like i was also intrigued by tracy's like like she had a criminology background which yes. i didn't know and um, the fact that she's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I just I got an MBA and took the accountant courses I needed so I could take the CPA exam. And I'm like, good for you. Not even really thinking about the CPA track at all, but knew that it had a certain cachet. Right. Yeah. And and pairing that with kind of her her desire to, you know, do do the forensics and the fraud stuff, um, I think was was smart on her part and was able to, you know, she she jumped through the hoops the right way to do it. Um, yeah. And I mean, this this podcast is eligible for CPE if you listen on Nearmark. So it's uh -huh. <laughs> like if, if you are looking, you know, to jump through a hoop, I don't know what I'm saying all of a sudden, but <laughs> in any case, jump through the hoops to get from criminology to, to certified public accountant land. Right. I don't think, I don't think this is one of the requirements for licensure, but, right. but to maintain. Yeah. 
right yeah. exactly to maintain yeah. there you go um anyway but yeah tracy uh was a was a great guest uh you know maybe we'll have her back i don't know do we, yeah. are we gonna double up i don't know yeah who knows the future knows? is uncertain but that's right Regardless, uh, that's it for this episode. And remember, if you are not hacking it at a CPA, you can always retool and become a prison warden. And also remember, everyone you know is lying to you and stealing from you. Or at least it feels that way if you're a forensic account. If you want to drop us a line, uh, send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And if you want to reach out to Caleb directly, uh, where can people find you out there, Caleb? Caleb can be found on Twitter <laughs> at C Newquist and on LinkedIn at my full name, Caleb Newquist. Where can Greg Kite be found? A uh, great place to find me is uh, also on Twitter at Greg Kite and LinkedIn. I'm Greg Kite CPA. Oh, my fraud is written by Caleb Newquist and Greg Kite. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review. It helps people find it or share it with a friend. That's also a good way to get the word out. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for the accountants out there, I think we mentioned it, but if you listen to this podcast on Earmark, you can earn free CPE. So convenient. Join us next time for more avarice swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh my, oh my fraud. fraud.